Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. That reading may be found in the Pew Bible on page 10. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, Lord, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Please pray with me. Father, there are many circumstances that seek to unsettle our souls, and we confess that we can be weak and frail in faith. And so I pray during this time that you would minister the word to us and that you would strengthen us by allowing us to gaze at the Lord Jesus Christ. I will wait for you. We will wait for you. And on your word, we will rely. Help us to know the truth of the gospel better when we leave this building this morning than we did when we came in. Help us to know our Lord and our Savior and to derive comfort and calm from him. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
The scriptures say a lot about peace and and tranquility, the, the peace and tranquility that can be yours in Christ. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. In John 14, 27, Jesus said to the disciples, Peace I live with, leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The Lord means to, to calm your soul, for you to experience quiet and rest, peace in your inmost being, stability and serenity and security at the, at the very core of who you are. Assurance before Him that produces contentment and satisfaction. But this isn't often our experience, is it? Trials and difficulties buffet us. Waves of suffering crash into us and our boat begins to take on water. And maybe Jesus is able to sleep. He's at rest on the cushion. But we have the tendency to panic. And like the disciples, we cry out, Master, Master, don't you care that we're perishing? We're easily unsettled. We're easily unsettled. And I'm sure you feel this. Can you think of uncertainties this morning that disquiet you? What about your future? Will you finish school well and complete your classes successfully? Will you get a good job? Will you find a spouse? Will you ever have kids? Will you have a good marriage in 10 years? How will your kids turn out? Will you be able to retire well? What will your your health be like? Will you be lonely? And what about suffering? Are Are you unsettled by difficulty? Do you have an injury or chronic pain? Are you experiencing broken relationships? Tension perhaps with family or loved ones? Have you lost a loved one? Maybe you've lost your job. Maybe it feels like God is ignoring your present uncertainty and difficulty. Does does God seem unresponsive to your turmoil? Have you asked God recently, how long, O Lord? And have you wondered why He doesn't intervene, why He doesn't act in power? How long do I have to endure this difficulty? How long will this pain last? Will I always be lonely? Will I ever find stability? Does God care? And I haven't mentioned death or sin yet. Talk about uncertainty. Death looms over each one of us. In many ways, it's, it's a scary unknown for you. It's unnatural. It's unexplored. It's intimidating. And sin can seem to plague us constantly. It, it dogs us day by day. You're tempted relentlessly. Your sin's always with you. It's, it's presence not yet having been vanquished. It's easy for you, I'm sure, as you look back on this past week to see how you've failed to measure up. To see how you've fallen short of God's glory and not been like Christ in all your conduct. And the future day when you will see Christ as He is and be like Him, it just might seem far off. It might seem really distant. It may very well seem to you like the Lord is slow to fulfill His promise to you. When will I ever be rid of sin? When will I finally be like Christ? So how can you face death with confidence? 
How can you patiently endure in a struggle against sin and and find rest? How can you experience peace and tranquility in all of life, no matter what your circumstances? How can you enjoy stability and security? How can your soul be calm? Dear friends, Genesis 15 is designed to tell you this morning. It's designed to show you. God intends from these words to calm your soul. So look with me at our passage, Genesis 15, verses 1 through 21. It's on page 10 if you're using one of our Bibles. And there's a gray outline in your bulletin that I think you may find helpful if you want to follow along. Dean read the whole chapter in our scripture reading, so we can just jump right in. And the chapter begins in verse 1 by saying, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. After what things? Well, if you remember from last week, Abram has, has just returned from war. In chapter 14, he led his 318 trained men against the four kings who had captured his nephew, Lot. And with God's help, he defeated them and he rescued Lot. And then he was blessed by the priest king, Melchizedek. Now Abram, having been successful in battle, has the word of the Lord come to him in a vision. And God says to him, fear not, Abram. Fear not. Now, why would Abram be afraid? Didn't he just witness God deliver his enemies into his hand? Yes. Yes, he did. But now that Lot's been rescued, now that God has intervened to overcome the threat of the Canaanite kings, Abram sets his mind and heart once again on the divine promise of offspring, and he doubts. He's weak and he's unsettled regarding God's promise. So God comes to him and says, Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. God speaks to him words of assurance, words meant to settle Abram down. By saying, I am your shield, he reminds Abram of his divine protection that we saw in chapter 14. God was with Abram in battle. And the Lord also says, your reward shall be very great. By this statement, God looks forward And he assures Abram that he will indeed reward him with offspring. Psalm 127.3 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. So God is assuring Abram, he's, he's calming Abram concerning his promise. Remember, in Genesis 12, God had promised Abram, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And he told Abram, to your offspring I will give this land. But now Abram is troubled by what in his mind is a a significant delay with regard to the offspring. You know that God's speaking about the offspring in verse 1 when he says, great reward, because that's where Abram directs his complaint in verses 2 and 3. He expresses his doubt in those verses. Look at him. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Verse 3, and Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. See, he's struggling because years have passed, and he remains childless. He's had to wait and wait and wait. And the only heir he can see is this servant, Eliezer. God's not acted in the way that Abram anticipated he would act. 
It seems to him that, that God isn't providing. God could have given him offspring, but he hasn't. And Abram says, what gives? And by the way, I wonder if you've ever felt this way. I wonder if you feel this way today. Does God seem inattentive to your needs? Maybe unmindful of your desires? Does he just seem unwilling to act on your behalf? You're convinced he's sovereign. You know he can do all things. But he seems to be ignoring you. He seems unwilling to make good on his promise to you. Well, Father Abraham has felt your pain. And when he did, he expressed his doubt to the Lord. And look at the Lord's response. Look at the Lord's reassuring response. His kind, gracious, comforting response in verse 4. This man shall not be your heir. God doesn't even say his name. Not, not this guy, Abram. Your very own son shall be your heir. He's, he's confirming the promise of the offspring. And then the, the Lord takes him outside. Imagine a, a dark desert night, big clear sky. Have you ever been out in the sticks somewhere? Maybe you live out in the sticks with, with no light pollution where you can just view myriads of stars. Our family camped at Half Moon State Park one summer down south of Middlebury, and, and I can remember two distinct things from that trip. One, how many fish we caught, and two, how many stars that we could see. We could just stare up at the sky and see nothing but stars from horizon to horizon. And in verse 5, God says to Abram, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your offspring be. A picture's worth a thousand words, isn't it? God directs Abram to the stars. God determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. And now every time Abram sees the stars, he's to remember, so shall your offspring be. Now in verse 6, I think Moses steps back and he narrates for you. He says, and he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And this verse is a, it's a haymaker. This is a, a solid roundhouse to your instability and uncertainty and fear. It's meant to give the reader great assurance. He believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to Abram as righteousness. Abram trusted. Abram had faith, only faith. And the Lord credited that faith to Abram as righteousness. He imputed right standing to him. He declared him to be just in God's sight. He justified Abram by faith alone. This statement in verse 6 isn't establishing the point in time when Abram believed. That's not its purpose. We know that Abram had faith back in chapter 12. This verse, rather, is the climactic expression of assurance from this first section, verses 1 through 6. It's the apex of the calm that's offered in these verses. It's meant to calm Israel as they read of God's assurance, and it's meant to calm you. The New Testament writers lean heavily on this verse when addressing justification and the nature of saving faith, particularly in Romans 4 and in Galatians 3 and in James 2. So turn with me and let's look briefly at Romans 4. 
Romans is the sixth book in the New Testament. You've got the Gospels, then Acts, then Romans. And we're looking at chapter 4. Page 941, if you have a pew Bible. And look at the Apostle Paul's argument in Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? He quotes our verse in Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Justification is by faith alone. You're credited with God's righteousness the moment you believe. And you believe when you you look away from yourself, when you acknowledge that you can contribute nothing to your salvation, when you cease trying to establish your own righteousness, And instead, you trust only in God's salvation promises. You depend only on Christ. You put your faith only in Him, the person and the work of Jesus Christ. See, when Jesus died on the cross, He stood in the place of sinners. He stood in the place of His people. And He became a sin offering. He became an atoning sacrifice. All the sins of His people were imputed to Him. He was credited with their transgressions. And then he was judged and punished as though he were a sinner, as though he were a lawbreaker and a covenant breaker. And when a sinner believes, Christ's righteousness, his perfect law keeping, his holiness is credited to their account. The sinner is declared right with God. This is the great exchange, the sweet exchange. My sin imputed to him. And his righteousness imputed to me. 2 Corinthians 5.21 captures it very well. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is justification. This is the gospel. Jesus has done it all. He lived a perfect life. He endured the cross. He rose from the dead. And we need only to believe to exercise faith alone. That's how God justifies the ungodly. Remember Joshua 24.2? Terah, and by implication Abraham, served other gods. Do you remember that? But God justified Abraham. God justified the ungodly one. Abraham believed the gospel, and he was declared righteous. Do Do you know that Abraham believed the gospel? He was anticipating by faith the coming of Jesus Christ. Turn real quickly with me to Galatians chapter 3. Just three books to the right if you're still in Romans. Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, then Galatians. And read with me starting in verse 5. Galatians 3, 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? That's a rhetorical question. Answer, hearing with faith. Verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, 
Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand. Do you see that? Preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Abraham was justified. Paul again quotes from Genesis 15, 6 here. Abram, Abram was justified because the gospel was preached to him. And by faith, he trusted in God's provision for an offspring. He trusted in Christ, the one who was to come. So back in Genesis 15, Abram is unsettled, but God assures him. And Abram proves himself to be a man of faith. In Romans 4.20, Paul is able to say, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith, and he gave glory to God. That's the final word on Abram's faith. Now, calm also comes to Abram in verses 7 through 21, the the second section of our text. Here again, you can see another dialogue of of doubt, but this time concerning the land. So verse 7 is parallel to verse 1. God gives Abram a, a statement of assurance. And verse 8 is parallel with verse 2. Abram expresses his doubt. And then verses 9 through 17 are parallel with verses 4 through 5. You can see the pattern I tried to put in your bulletin outline. In verse 7, God assures Abram by saying, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you the land to possess. So God reminds Abram that he delivered him from his pagan home and has promised him the land. This anticipates The Exodus, by the way, the opening statement of the Mosaic Covenant, the the preamble to the Ten Commandments says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, the house of slavery. So this assurance to Abram would have been a significant assurance to the nation of Israel, reading this. And Abram replies with unsettling doubt again. Oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Here, Abram expresses his uncertainty. How can I be sure? How's this all going to work? I don't even have the offspring you promised, and yet I possess all this? Seems like an awfully distant promise. Maybe, Maybe even beyond his lifetime, which it turns out to be. So Abram expresses his doubt, just like he did back in verses 2 and 3. And like he did previously, God responds with grace. And kindness, he mercifully and and powerfully assures Abram of the certainty of his promise regarding the land. And he uses a rather strange ritual to do it. He, He paints a rather strange picture. Verses 9 through 17 describe a covenant making ceremony whereby God restates his promise to Abram and he guarantees the outcome based on his own faithfulness. And God here is formalizing, he's confirming his promises to Abram. The promises we heard back in Genesis 12. Remember, God had said, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. I will give this land to your offspring. I will, I will, I will. And now God is ratifying those promises with a covenant ceremony. He's cutting a covenant with Abram. First, God commands Abram to bring clean, sacrificial animals and to prepare them by by killing them and dividing them. 
Abraham does so, and he arranges the sacrifices just as he was instructed to do. Every animal, except for the birds, is cut in half, and half of each animal is placed on one side, and half of each animal is placed on the other side, with room to walk in between. And cutting the animals like this is part of cutting the covenant. It was a common ceremony that involved each party swearing an oath and then walking between the pieces of the sacrifices. Passing through the pieces was like saying, if I break this covenant, if I transgress this covenant, may I be cursed with death like these animals. It's sometimes called a self-maledictory oath. You can see this kind of thing in Jeremiah 34, verses 18 through 20. You don't have to turn there, but just listen to these verses. The men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts. The officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf. And I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives. See, the the ceremony is a snapshot of what will happen if the covenant's violated. There will be a curse of death upon the one who breaks the covenant. So Abram prepares the clean sacrificial animals, and then birds of prey come down in verse 11. And these are scavengers, like vultures or crows, unclean birds. And because the sacrificial animals are clearly clean animals... They'll be a part of the Levitical law. And because the birds of prey are clearly unclean animals, I think we have a picture of Israel and the Gentile nations. The clean birds, the sacrificial birds, represent Israel, which was always to be clean before the Lord. And the unclean birds, the birds of prey, represent the unclean Gentile nations who would oppress Israel, namely Egypt, most prominently Egypt. And this sets the stage for the prophetic assurance that God gives in verses 13 through 16. First, note that Abram is put into a deep sleep, and great darkness falls upon him. He isn't an active participant in this covenant ceremony. He he receives the promises, he's a beneficiary of the promises, but he doesn't swear an oath, and he doesn't pass through the pieces. Now read with me the prophetic promise that God makes, starting in verse 13, Genesis 15, 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain. Abram had asked, How am I to know? And God says, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. Where's that? Egypt, right. And will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Those are the plagues and the exodus. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Here's a promise of certainty. And it's also prophetic. Before Israel comes into the land, they will be enslaved and afflicted in Egypt. They will be preyed upon by unclean birds, if you will. And then God will deliver them mightily. He'll shoo away Egypt and bring Israel back into the promised land in the fourth generation under Joshua, just in time for the righteous judgment of the Amorites, those wicked Canaanites who lived in the land. It's all planned out. And do you see how this is a great help to Abram, whose faith in the promise has been disturbed? 
Do you see how this is a kind of confirmation of the land promise? Yes, Abram, I will give you this land. And here's a glimpse at how it will play out. There will be suffering. There will be slavery, which is a metaphorical death. In fact, the birds of prey in verse 11 and the dreadful and great darkness in verse 12 certainly portend something awful, something terrible. In my mind, they're very ominous, very foreboding pictures of death. So Israel, Abram's offspring, will suffer and die, but be delivered. There's the seed of the woman with her heel crushed. But Egypt, verse 14, will be judged and overcome. No doubt Egypt is the seed of the serpent whose head will be crushed in the judgment. Do you see that? So Abram's nation, Abram's offspring, will be given the land, but only through death and resurrection. And likewise, Abram's God, Israel's God, will lead them into the promised land through death and resurrection. How can I say that? Well, look at verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. What does that mean? What's going on here? This smoking fire pot and the flaming torch represent God's presence. When God leads Israel out of Egypt in Exodus 13, 21, he'll do so by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. When God appears at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, there will be lightnings and thick clouds on the mountain. So when the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch pass between the pieces, it's God passing between the pieces. He's binding himself to Abram and to Israel and promising to fulfill his oath. He's guaranteeing the covenant. He's the only one passing through the pieces and thereby demonstrating that the covenant will depend on him and only him. He will be sure that the covenant succeeds. And he's making the promise sure with the self-maledictory oath that I described earlier. God's saying, if I transgress this covenant, may I be cursed with death like these animals. Now, did you hear that? By passing between the pieces in verse 17, God is saying, if I transgress this covenant, may I be cursed with death like these animals. God himself is passing through the sacrifices. He's passing through death. This picture points you to the gospel. This picture points you to Jesus Christ. Remember, when Jesus died on the cross for his people, their sins were imputed to him. Their covenant breaking was credited to his account And he was treated as a covenant breaker. And that's exactly what's being pictured here. This covenant was was transgressed. Israel was unfaithful to the covenant. God's people violated the covenant. But God has undertaken to secure the covenant himself. Only he passed through the pieces. Thus, this is a picture of the gospel. God has vowed to take upon himself the curse of covenant breaking. And this is exactly, exactly what we see in Jesus Christ. The divine Son of God came to earth and he lived a perfect covenant-keeping life. But he took the curse of covenant breaking upon himself. He suffered and died for the transgressions of others. And thus he upholds the covenant. The covenant is secured and confirmed and ratified in him. His death and resurrection guarantee the covenant. He makes it sure. 
The very light of the world passed through the darkness, between the sacrifices, if you will, becoming a sacrifice himself. And then he came out the other side having triumphed over sin and death. And thus he can lead his people, he can lead his people out of slavery and out of death, and he can deliver them from judgment. And he can bring them out of their sin, and he can rescue and save his people and give them life. And this brings us to verses 18 through 21. Here again, Moses narrates for us. We step out of the dialogue, and we hear Moses write, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land. That's the concluding statement for this second section. It's a climactic statement, and the only time the word covenant appears in our passage. This is the first explicit mention of the Abrahamic covenant. This covenant gives Abram assurance. It's designed to calm him with a sacrificial guarantee. The Lord has confirmed his promise through an oath in blood. Well, this chapter shows shows the Lord in his mercy and grace, giving Abram certainty concerning the promises. The Lord calms Abram's unsettled heart so that his uncertainty can give way to peace and rest. Likewise, dear church, this word of certainty is giving calm to you. Have you been reminded this morning of your justification, brothers and sisters? God has declared you righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. His righteousness has been credited to your account. You're righteous because of what Jesus has done. Not because of what you can do but because of what He has done. His atoning work is the sole ground of your salvation. Nothing you contribute, no works whatsoever, add to your right standing before God. Why are you right with God this morning? Because your sin was imputed to Jesus Christ. Brother and sister, your sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and you bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Your sin was judged and punished in Christ on the cross. He absorbed God's wrath against your sin and He died in your place. And He was raised for your justification. And He has conquered your sin. And His righteousness has been imputed to you. When God sees you, He sees the righteousness of His Son. Brother and sister, God is for you. God's for you. He's no longer against you. You've been justified. And that justification is made certain for you because of the new covenant guarantee that's yours in Jesus Christ. The new covenant is sure. Jesus has secured it for you with his blood. He entered once for all, the author of Hebrews tells us, into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing for you an eternal redemption. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. His death established the new covenant. His death inaugurated it. His death redeems you from all your transgressions. When Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Brothers and sisters, because of his shed blood, because of his death on the cross, Jesus has secured the new covenant and it's yours by faith. And listen to some of the God's promises in the New Covenant. 
I will put my law within you, and I will write it on your hearts. I will be your God, and you shall be my people. I will forgive your iniquity, and I will remember your sin no more. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. I will cleanse you from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. These promises, brothers and sisters, these promises and more are undoubtedly yours. Is it clear this morning how these promises are secured for you? How are they merited? How are they confirmed? On the basis of the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how. It's certain that Jesus died. It's certain that Jesus was raised from the dead. It's certain that he's seated at God's right hand, interceding for his people. Therefore, it is certain that these promises are yours in Christ. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not trusting in Jesus Christ by faith alone, then you're not enjoying the benefits of the new covenant. He's the only one who secured these promises that I just read. You can't earn them. You can't attain them with your own effort. They are promises received only through faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, apart from Christ, your iniquities are not forgiven. You remain unclean before God. He's not your God, and you're not yet one of His people. You remain in your sins. You haven't been justified. Christ's righteousness has not been imputed to you. God's wrath instead remains on you and his judgments await you. Talk about unsettling. Talk about troubling and disquieting. There is no calm for your soul if you remain outside of Jesus Christ. None. No lasting calm, no real peace. Why? Because you're enslaved to your sin. You're not free. You're working to earn God's favor, so you're you're never certain whether he's pleased with you. You don't have the comfort of his presence and protection. You don't have his guidance and his care. You're alone and lost, and you're guilty. And you're on your way to hell. And you need the one and only Savior who laid down his life for sinners just like you. Which is why I say to you today, come to Jesus and put your faith in him. That's your only hope. Come to Jesus and put your faith in him. Turn from your sin. Rest from your works. Put all your hope in Jesus Christ. Seek forgiveness in him. Bank on him. Find all your security in him. Jesus loves to save sinners just like you. He does. And if you believe his promises and trust in him alone, he will declare you righteous on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done. He'll justify you. He'll rescue you from your sin. And so, please, unbelieving friend, lay hold of Jesus Christ today. Lay hold of him. And dear church, brothers and sisters, what's unsettling you? Is it the uncertainty of your future? What major unknown is making you upset? What are you not sure about that disturbs you? Is it related to money or community 
or relationships? Does it concern your health or maybe your work or your classes? What desires are you hoping will not go unmet? Maybe you want to be married. Maybe you want to have kids. Maybe you have kids and you're worried about what they'll be doing in 10 years. How they'll be doing in 10 years. Perhaps you have goals and and you're not sure you're going to achieve them or experience them with work or with school or with ministry. There's a lot we don't know about, isn't there? There's a lot that God hasn't promised us, quite frankly. But what is certain? It's certain that God will make good on his promises to you in Jesus Christ. He won't falter with your forgiveness. He won't stop short of giving you everything that's yours in the new covenant. He won't. You are justified and you're righteous in his sight. And as a result, God is for you. Dear Saint, God is for you. He loves you. He has your best interest in mind. All of his wrath that was against you has been completely spent on the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's only favor left. That's all that's remaining for you. If God is for you, who can be against you? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him, along with Jesus, graciously give us all things? If God has given you Jesus Christ, the mediator of the new covenant, the one who is your righteousness, then won't he give you all things? He'll give you all the things that are necessary for your salvation. And he'll give you everything he knows is best for you as he conforms you into the image of his son. What else is certain? It's certain that if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then all these things will be added unto you. What things? All the things that Jesus mentions that you can get anxious and unsettled about. Your life. Things like food and clothing. And right in that passage, brother and sister, Jesus Christ says that he values you. The birds are well taken care of, Jesus says. And you are much more valuable to God than they. God will take care of you. He will. He knows exactly what you need. He knows your desires. He knows your needs. He invites you to come to him and talk to him all about it. And he wants you to remember that your Father who is in heaven promises to give good gifts to those who ask him. And all this can calm your soul. It can help bring you rest and it can help bring you peace knowing that God is with you and he's for you in all things and in all circumstances. Maybe you're unsettled by delay. You're wondering how long you're going to suffer with this present difficulty you're experiencing. You're wondering when God's ever going to act in response to your prayers. You're wondering if your longings will ever be satisfied. And you don't see how it's all going to work out anytime soon. Well, how does, our, how does our passage deal with suffering? I think it tackles it head on. Abram is weak and he's anxious. He feels uneasy about his situation. He feels uneasy about God's promise. And he's honest with the Lord. He voices his complaint, ready to receive an answer from the Lord. And the Lord's response directly addresses suffering. It will take time. God tells Abram, and it will be difficult. There will be servitude, there will be affliction, but there will be a, a great deliverance. In effect, there will be death, 
and then resurrection. Now Abram's given some solace in the midst of this prophecy. You shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in good old age. But the bulk of God's word to Abram is about suffering, the pathway to fulfillment of the promise. So I think this can help you manage your expectations. There will be many trials. You will meet various trials of various kinds, and they'll grieve you. The Lord Jesus said in John 16, in the world you will have tribulation. And God intends to calm your soul amidst these trials and tribulations. He often doesn't remove or change the circumstances immediately, does he? Sometimes he does, but often he doesn't alter our circumstances. Not on our timetable or the way we want him to. Which is why in John 16, Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in, may, in me you may have peace. Yes, in the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. Take heart. I have overcome the world. If your present circumstances are, are troubling you, if delay is unsettling you, look to Jesus. Fix your eyes on the Savior that has gone before you, the founder and the perfecter of your faith, your champion. He endured difficulty throughout his life. He was a suffering servant. He was a man of sorrows. But his soul was calm. It was. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus was greatly distressed and troubled, as Mark tells us, he prayed, he sought the Lord, and he he said, Thy will be done. And he came away from the garden calm and steady, didn't he? He was able to submit to his betrayer and the Roman authorities. He was able to enter his trial as a sheep that before its shears is silent. He was able to endure the cross. Jesus was resting in the joy that was set before him. Brother and sister, you can endure difficulty. You can patiently wait upon the Lord because Jesus has gone before you. And he's given you his spirit in order to lead you. Your soul can be calmed by knowing and walking with your Savior, fellowshipping in his sufferings, communing with him, hoping in him. He saved you. He's justified you. You're now righteous. He's made unfailing promises to you. And now you get to delight in him. Your sins have been forgiven, and you've been given the hope of eternal life. So now you can fix your eyes on resurrection. The day is coming when without, without any caveat, all your mourning will be turned into joy. All your griefs will be turned into delight. Sin will be no more. Suffering will be a distant memory. And you will be completely satisfied. Until then, you're waiting upon the Lord. Looking to that day. And that can enable you to be calm. Isaiah 64, 4 says, From of old no one has heard or perceived by ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You can wait on the Lord calmly, knowing that one day he will act with resurrection power, and you will see him as he is, and you will be like him. When we sang the song, I will wait for you, we sang this. Were you to count my sinful ways, how could I come before your throne? 
Yet full forgiveness meets my gaze. I stand redeemed by grace alone. I will wait for you. I will wait for you. On your word, I will rely. I will wait for you, surely wait for you, till my soul is satisfied. CMC, let the gospel and let the promises of our Lord Jesus Christ calm you today. And may you be able to say, may we all be able to say, along with King David in Psalm 131, 2, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would minister strong grace to us, that we would be a church that though afflicted and though struggling would be calm and at peace through our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, our resolved commitment to gaze at him and hold fast to him in all things. Help us, O God, in our weakness. Make us strong. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.